Today on Deep Background, we'll take a look at that controversial and interesting race for the Kansas House in Wyandotte County. And then a broad look at economic incentives in Kansas City. Are changes in store? We'll talk with one of the best reporters in town on that issue and others when we come back on Deep Background. And hello, you're on Deep Background for October 6th, 2020. Dave Helling with the Kansas City Star, Derek Donovan with the Kansas City Star, both on the editorial board joining me, my co-host and Steve Bockrot, a great reporter for the Star to talk about a couple of things of interest. Apologies first, we had a technical problem last week, so if you missed the show, don't worry, you didn't miss anything because there was no show. <laughs> so we apologize for that, but we're going to pick up uh, today where we left off then. And Steve, let me start out by asking you, you had a story uh, recently about a guy named Aaron Coleman, who we've written about a bunch on the editorial page. Uh, he is a candidate, Democratic candidate for the uh, Kansas House uh, and your story suggests that his uh, difficulties go back farther than may, many people may have understood. Tell me about what your reporting was and, and give us the Aaron Coleman background, if you will. Sure. I'll start with the Aaron Coleman background. Uh, Aaron Coleman uh, is a man in Wyandotte County uh, who entered the race for the House Kansas House 37th District, which is you know, Turner area, generally speaking, uh, there in central Wyandotte County. He was 19 years old when he joined the race. Uh, he's since turned 20. But he was a, uh, he's a young man who jumped into, jumped into politics. He didn't have much of a profile, a uh, public profile. He ran for governor, right? He did a, he did a write-in campaign for governor in 2018, Amongst, he was among several teenagers who, who ran for governor, uh, as listeners may recall. And he was running in the Democratic primary against a incumbent named Stan Fraunfelter, who has been elected to that district since 2007. And Coleman is running on a uh, fairly progressive platform. Uh, and Fraunfelter is known for being a very centrist type Democrat Um gets criticized sometimes for voting with Republicans, um, but he is, he is your middle-of-the-road Wyandotte County Democrat. So Coleman surprised a lot of people when he beat Fraunfelter in the primary. When, then several things started emerging about uh, Mr. Coleman. There were accusations that he had blackmailed a woman when he was a teenager, 12 years, or well, no, 12 years old, he tells me. Um, he had obtained a nude photograph of her uh, threatened to circulate it if she didn't send him other nude photographs. There was also a woman who said that uh, he had bullied her uh, to the point in which he attempted suicide. Again, behavior from his, uh, his teenage, teenage years. And the story I reported on uh, this within this last week were... Uh, let's, uh, just let me stop you there real quick, Steve, just to finish the background. He dropped out of the race for a time. He won the primary, dropped out of the race, and then got back in. Yeah, he dropped out briefly saying that, you know, his dad was in the hospital and that all this exposure and attention to him was nothing that he had ever expected. I mean, the stories about him got picked up in the New York Times. Um, you know, it got some national attention uh, for, 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 for a time. And so he dropped out, but then he quickly got back in. 
And <clears throat> Fraunfelter, it should be noted, is running a write-in campaign against him. There's also a Republican named Christina Smith who's running a write-in campaign as well. But Aaron Coleman's the only name that will appear on the ballot uh, on November 3rd, which gives him a decent chance of getting elected to the state house. All right. So that brings us up to your story, which is you uncovered other another incident from his background that voters should know about, I guess. Right. Through search of uh, court records, I had noticed that he had been charged uh, at one point um, back in 2015. Uh, I requested supporting documents uh, for that charge. And it turns out that he had been arrested uh, in 2015. He was accused of uh, making a threat over, uh, over text messaging, uh, some text message platform against a girl saying that he would uh, go to a Turner school district school and shoot her and then shoot himself. And the police, the police thought it was serious enough that he was, uh, that he was, he was charged. He later pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor and it uh, became, you know, given that his issues in his youth have already been an issue during the uh, campaign season, this was just, another one to add to the mix. Yeah. You, you know, when this story first surfaced, I think a lot of people wondered, certainly some people asked me, how could this happen? How could a candidate like this uh, win a primary? And, and uh, the answer I give to a lot of people is it's surprising it doesn't happen more often. It's just so hard to give scrutiny to all these people, at least particularly in the current environment. Uh, it's hard to give scrutiny to all of these candidates. Um, but, but but what is happening? I mean, what did happen over there, Steve? Do you have a sense of that? What uh, and what is happening now? I mean, are these stories piling up? Or you said earlier he's the only name on the ballot. It's going to be it's going to be hard to dislodge him from this seat. Yeah. So I think a couple things happened here. I mean, I will say that there is um, there is certainly evidence that Coleman is running a persuade well. He, he is running an active ground game. He is knocking on doors. He is getting out there in the community. Um, you know, and I've heard criticisms of Stan Fraunfelter that he didn't take Coleman seriously enough. He didn't do all that much work to, you know, secure his, his, his seat. Um, and didn't really maybe understand how concerned some of his constituents were about his his service, right? I mean, I've heard that, that he wasn't really paying attention while in office to what his constituents were saying. Right. And there's a possibility, too, that his brand of centrist Democratic politics are not quite uh, quite as well in tune with the, uh, uh, with the district as, as they once were. And yeah. so it should be noted that Fraunfelter lost a race that he ran uh, in 2018, I believe. Uh, for the Board of Public Utilities. Um, so there's an indication that there's a softening support for, for Stan Fraunfelter, which gives an entree to somebody like Aaron Coleman, who's going to be active, who's going to knock on doors, who's going to try and get out in the community and you know, spread the word about himself. Um, you know, Some of these initial round of allegations about the problems in his youth started popping up right before or even after the election. And you know, Fraunfelter and some others have suggested, you know, if the voters knew more about Aaron Coleman, he wouldn't have won. Um, and they're banking on, they're banking on that idea, you know, carrying the day for Fraunfelter or even potentially 
although unlikely, uh, somewhat unlikely, Christina Smith. It's a very Democratic district, so a Republican write-in is going to be tough. Right. It is fair to say, and we should note here, that it is the responsibility of the opponent to bring some of this stuff up. I mean, you know, Stan Fraunfelter could have talked about this more if he knew about it back in the primary. On the other hand, Aaron Coleman has admitted these behaviors, hasn't he? Steve, he didn't deny your story. He didn't deny the stuff we've written about uh, these, you know, involvements with, with women, you would think it would start piling up a little bit. Is there any evidence of that? You know, he has largely been apologetic, um, publicly apologetic. He has admitted to many of the details about his issues. Um, you know, there was one instance, there was, there was a more recent allegation against him by an ex-girlfriend of his who I interviewed who said that, you know, he had, uh, uh, he, had, he had choked and slapped her in an incident that they had had at, in, a, in a hot tub at an Airbnb in Kansas City toward the end of 2019. So it'd be more recent than some of these other incidents that we've talked about. And he, you know, he acknowledged being abusive toward her. Um, he disputed some of the elements of her allegations, but largely he has copped them. He has said that he's sorry, that he's trying to grow into uh, the man that he wants to be. Uh, he is also, you know, while saying that, you know, he, he said even recently on Twitter that he is uh, still the moral superior to the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Republican Party, which, you know, enacts policies that he thinks are harmful toward, uh, uh, toward constituents. And so that's we, been in his position. Before we take a break, do we have any sense, Steve, you tell me, whether official Democratic uh, folks, people, uh, have come to terms with Aaron Coleman as the nominee, or are they helping him, not helping him? You know, the, I think the, that we've got a statement, don't we, from some House leadership that they don't want to seat the guy if he wins the election. How does that, how does official Democratic uh, po- uh, Party um, uh, statements and postures play into this, if at all? They've largely, the Democrats have largely distanced themselves with Coleman as best they can, I suppose. I mean, there isn't a whole lot that they can do. If he wants to run as a Democrat, he can run as a Democrat. They can't, I mean, they can choose not to give him resources. And I think there's indications that that's at play. I think the Democratic establishment would prefer that Fraunfelter get another seat. I think there's a little bit of nervousness that, you know, this very reliable blue seat could turn red. Although again, I think there's, you know, significant headwinds toward that effort. Um, But yeah, I don't see him. I don't think he's getting a whole lot of help necessarily from Democrats. And if elected, it's hard to see him getting much in the way of choice committee assignments. I think he's going to have some challenges being able to convince his colleagues to enact some of these uh, progressive policies that he is uh, that he's campaigning on. You've spent so much time over in Wyandotte County. Is the district interested? Are people paying attention? Is this a story that's uh, gone by the wayside for a lot of voters, or will we expect an additional turnout over there? Um, you know, turnout is, is is always hard to say. I mean, there were indications in the primary that turnout was decent, you know, particularly in a pandemic year where the voting process has been somewhat confused, um, where there's safety concerns, issues like that. You know, Kansas, uh, to its advantage, I suppose, has you know, a much easier path towards mail-in ballot, uh, casting mail-in ballots than, say, Missouri does. And so that helps a little bit. But, you know, I think there's, I think this 
whole issue's gotten uh, you know some attention in in uh, District 37. Um, it's hard to say how much it's really penetrating the thoughts of right. of voters and how they will ultimately react when uh, uh, you know the votes are tallied. I need to do some more reporting to figure out you know how and when are we going to find out what the result of this election is because uh, presumably there will be a sizable you know even if not majority write-in uh, result. You know I, I can. I can presume that there will be uh, election workers counting ballots as they stand and Christina for uh, a little uh, while. Before they and, and of course, under Kansas law, if it gets close, there may be a real wrestling match over which ballots, what write-in ballots should count, should not count, how liberal to construe the, the signatures or the write-in. I mean, that, that gets very complicated very quickly. Right. And, you know, I don't, I, I also need to figure out what voters are allowed to write in to have about a vote count for Stan Fraunfelter. It's not the easiest name to remember and, right. and, and spell, you know, are they, you know, Stan had told me a while back that he was going to see if he could get uh, the Kansas secretary of state to adopt, you know, some other type of, you know, not, not like a different name, but a different type of uh, thing that the voters could write in maybe, Stan F or something like that. And right, I think we did some reporting on this, and I think it is pretty liberal, isn't it, Derek? It's that that's will, right. The, the will of the voter, the intent of the voter. You don't have to spell it exactly right to get the vote to count. If you're able to get Stan F on it, uh, friend, fill, filler, anything like that, they will count those votes. Yes, but 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 you know, on the other hand, you could see where a candidate would challenge that. I mean, they would, and then you do get a sort of a hand-to-hand combat kind of thing. Okay, Steve, uh, why don't we take a break? When we come back, I want to talk about your other big story on redevelopment uh, policy in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, great subject. We talked about it a little bit last week. You never heard it. You're going to hear it again. Dave Helling on Deep Background. Hey there, this is Derek Donovan of the Kansas City Star Editorial Board, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at The Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a deep background listener. By subscribing at that URL, you will get three months of unlimited digital access to The Star for $1.99 total. That's right. You get access to KansasCity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, our mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. That's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you will be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So, go grab your computer or mobile device and head to KansasCity.com slash background. And hey, thanks for listening. Back now on Deep Background with Steve Vockrod of The Star, Derek Donovan of The Star. Well, Steve, let's change gears a little bit and talk about what we talked about last week and didn't get very far uh, for the public. And that is the story you uh, wrote about changes in the way that Kansas City, Missouri is thinking about approaching economic incentives uh, by restructuring, uh, potentially anyway, the way that it's overseen and, and how incentives are used. Tell us, you know, synopsize, if you can, your story very quickly, and then what you think it, uh, you know, means for uh, Kansas City's use of incentives going forward. Obviously, there are some important conversations going on. Right. So, right now, let's say I'm a developer. I have a project that I think can't get done unless I get some help from, uh, I guess, some tax breaks or tax incentives, subsidies. Um, 
whatever you call it. For the most part, I am going to go to an agency called the Economic Development Corporation, which administers these state agencies that grant different types of tax abatements or different kinds of incentives. If you go to their website, they literally list it. Here's all the things we can do for you and abatements and subsidies and payments and bonds and loans and all that other stuff. Right. So there's all these different things I can go try and get that can give me various different kinds of benefits for whatever kind of project I'm doing. And I go through this process. I hire a lawyer and, you know, I either get it or I don't. In Kansas City, often you get it if you ask for it. And that's one of the criticisms of tax abatements and tax incentives for private commercial development. Um, Well, what's being talked about right now, this is an idea that's lurking around there, and I got my hands on some documents that spoke to it, is this idea that all these agencies would be moved into a new 501c4, basically another a different nonprofit that is not the Economic Development Corporation, and that this, econo- this, this new entity would be controlled by the Port Authority. Um, and the Port Authority is a, a, it's a state agency, technically, that is fairly obscure, Um, but I would say in the last 10 years or so has started gaining quite a bit of prominence um, in, in, in involving itself in development. And so they would, you know, they would be the ones in charge of a lot of the tax break, not all of them, but almost all of the tax break programs that we have in Kansas city. So that's one of the proposals that's afoot here. Um, sort of restructure who's responsible, who's accountable uh, for these programs and where developers and their lawyers will go to kind of get these sorts of deals done. And we should point out to people that this structure seems like it's boring inside baseball, but it's fundamental to how these, you know, how this money is handed out, millions of dollars. It, 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 people see it when it gets to the city council level, Steve, but they don't see it at this stage where the discussions are underway and the lawyers are hired and the, and the projects are put together. And really, a lot of times it's given to the council as sort of a take it or leave it proposition based on the discussions that are made six months to a year before it ever reaches the level of public awareness. Right. And there's even some of these programs where the council doesn't have the final say. It's, you know, it's the, uh, it's the agency that uh, can just do it and it's a done deal. Um, I think the city council and the, particularly the mayor's office can set the direction of what these tax break agencies do because they appoint the board members. But if you really want to get into the weeds, then some of these agencies can act independently of the city. Um, and, you know, that's happened before. And so, um, and so, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, sometimes it does get up to the city council as a take-it-or-leave-it arrangement if it gets to the city council at all. Yeah, and we should also point out that the EDC operates itself by taking fees from this process, and so there's an incentive for the EDC, right, to to pursue projects. Otherwise, they go out of business. That's that's true. Although they get they do get a lot of their money too from city hall, you know, on a contractual basis. But why not? Why not? Let's explain to people why. There, there's long been talk about bringing EDC in house and just doing it at Twelfth and Oak. And why are we paying these people this money? And why has that never happened? Well, because the developers kind of like it this way, don't they? You you could certainly you could certainly say that. Um, you know, I think. 
part, and, and there's been a little bit of ping pong between the EDC and City Hall over the years. You know, at one point, the finance, fu- the finance function was taken out of, uh, of, the, of City Hall and put into the EDC. You know, the, right. say the finance function, kind of how they evaluate these deals financially. And now that's heading back to City Hall. The EDC's funding is being cut by uh, the city in the midst of the pandemic. You know, their board has gotten smaller, their staff has gotten smaller. Um, so in some ways, if you want to look at it that way, you can see the EDC as an agency that's been kind of ripe for the pickings. Yeah. And, you know, the Port Authority, meanwhile, has, like I said earlier, has gained in stature and that they, you know, if this proposal came to pass, they would really be the ones in charge of a significant segment of how economic development is done. And there is irony there, of course, because about 10 years ago, Port Authority was part of EDC. And in fact, was in the EDC offices and got kicked out because the EDC was worried about a potential illegality or improper behavior on the part of the Port Authority. And so the Port Authority went off on its own. Port Authority also makes its money from doing deals, right, Steve? I mean, you know, I'm just trying to illustrate for listeners how intricate this system is. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, in some ways, the EDC also wanted to get out of, uh, or the, the Port Authority also wanted to get out of the EDC. Yes, uh, it was mutual. But part of the problem with that is, you know, when, when you have these different agencies and different groups out there, and you don't have a common uh, organization that's responsible for them, whether that's City Hall or EDC or someone else, what developers tend to do is they do what's called uh, de- you know deal shopping. They'll go to the different agencies that are independent of one another. You know, say, hey, here's my project, here's my deal. What will you guys give me? And then they can take that to a different agency and say, here's what I got over here. What will you guys do for me? And if everybody's got this financial incentive, you know, to some extent, to get fees off these deals, then you. S- can end up with uh, projects that get maybe more incentives than uh, the right. other one. And the Port Authority, we should also be clear, has some uh, power, responsibility to act outside of City Hall uh, in terms of issuing bonds, doing other things that uh, normally agencies don't really have. So it, it, it has some ability to do these things, doesn't it, Steve, that make it a, a, a logical choice, if not maybe a good policy choice, at least a logical place to go with some of this stuff. They are legally a state agency. They're formed by state statute. You know, their board is appointed by the mayor. But, you know, I think the Port Authority has taken the posture in the past that, hey, we, we see ourselves as a Kansas City agency in a lot of ways, but we can do things, you know, differently than what the city council or what the mayor's office may necessarily want if, if they need to. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's fair to say that they take their direction from City Hall now, particularly as some of these issues have bubbled up. But um, they they do have they they are technically independent in a lot of ways. Yeah, we're about out of time, but let's wrap this conversation up with some observations about the likelihood of this reorganization taking place or something like it. And in your mind, Steve, does it does it reflect a broader concern about the ubiquity of financing mechanisms or is it just pushing boxes around on an organizational chart? And the corollary question to that is, post-pandemic, won't the pressure for economic incentives to, uh, uh, for projects in Kansas City grow? I mean, can't you see a situation next year where they go, hey, we're dead in the water, we need to do another hotel, we need to do another 
headquarters. We need to do another office building uh, to, 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 you know, spring back to life. Well, we do have that history is somewhat of a guide for this, you know, coming out of the recession uh, of 2008, 2009, there was a lot of pressure, uh, you know, particularly among the development community that said, hey, you know, is the economy, you know, the economy's cratered, we haven't done deals in a couple of years, the capital markets have been frozen, and, you know, they're, they're taking a while to thaw. And as a public policy perspective, we can't just can't sit on our heels forever. We're going to have to start doing some deals, which means getting some help from City Hall to get these deals done. I think in the current environment, you know, particularly one in which there's a lot of discussion about economic equity, uh, economic equality, and, you know, against the broader backdrop of income and racial inequalities that are pervasive in the United States, there's, there's going to be a counter pressure to doing a lot of incentives um, you know, particularly ones in the urban core in which, you know, the school districts and the county and the library may argue, hey, you guys are, you guys are blunting the amount of revenue growth we can get when you guys do these deals, particularly property tax abatements, which are the primary source of funding for school districts. So there's going to be a tug of war in both directions uh, on this coming uh, as we come out of the come out of the recession. All right, great. Steve Ockrott, thank you so much. I apologize for the abbreviated conversation on such an important and deep topic. We'll come back to it again. And thanks for your observations on the Aaron Coleman race as well uh, over in Wyandotte County. Derek Donovan is always my co-host. Thank you for being with us. I'm Dave Helling with the STARS Editorial Board. You have been on the background. <laughs>